Lesson 8 for November 15 to 21. The Humility of Heavenly Wisdom. Sabbath afternoon, November 15. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you as petitioners today because each of us is a sinner. Each of us has the opportunity to be saved by grace, and we thank you for that grace and for that salvation. And we give ourselves to you as we study this lesson, the humility of heavenly wisdom. We pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us and bless us and draw us closer to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is James chapter 4 and verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's read that again, James 4.10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. In many mid-size and larger companies, a middle manager mentality exists. This attitude happens when workers feel entitled to something they do not yet have. More respect, a higher salary, a more advanced position, and so on. This unhealthy attitude develops over time as the person strives to get ahead. Symptoms may include flattering remarks served up to decision-makers and uncomplimentary revelations made about co-workers, all seasoned with a spirit of selfish rivalry. When one major television news anchor advanced to the top without destroying others to get there, a colleague admiringly observed, "'There were no dead bodies.'" It would be nice to think that selfish rivalry is confined to secular organizations and that church operates quite differently. Unfortunately, Scripture indicates that all too often worldly wisdom also operates among believers. This week, let's see what the Word of God has to say about this unfortunate reality. Sunday, November 16, The Meekness of Wisdom. Our text for today is James 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And our question is, the meekness of wisdom? What might that mean? Some commentators think that the entire third chapter of James has to do with what qualifies or disqualifies people to be teachers. Naturally, the wise and understanding would seem to be good candidates, but the scope seems to be broader, encompassing the whole congregation. The wisdom James describes here and throughout the epistle is not primarily the intellectual variety so esteemed by the ancient Greeks and many Western countries today. Rather, wisdom is seen in one's conduct and lifestyle, as indicated by the Greek word for it, anostrophe, translated conduct. This text, or this word, is actually used in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And also in Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, 
considering the outcome of their conduct. And First Peter chapter 1, verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And First Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Having your conduct honourable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Our actions and conduct testify as to how wise we are. Jesus taught the same, saying that wisdom is justified by her children in Matthew 11.19. Interestingly, the only place in the Old Testament where the phrase translated wise and understanding is found is Moses' admonition to Israel to observe all the laws that God had commanded. As it says in Deuteronomy 4.6, Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. In contrast, the bitter water spring referred to in James 3.11 produces envy and selfish ambition in verse 14 in the church. The latter translates the Greek word erythia, which refers to the exclusive pursuits of one's own interest. That's an attitude that sounds more like Satan in heaven than like what Christians should be on earth. Unless we make a conscious choice to die to self and surrender our wills to the Lord, all of us could be in danger of displaying precisely the attitudes here that James warns about. So to finish today, dwell more on the phrase, the meekness of wisdom, what are some of the situations in which right now some of this wisdom on your part would be very helpful? Monday, November 17, Two Kinds of Wisdom Question. Read James chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. What is his description of worldly wisdom? What are the common ways we see this wisdom manifested in the world or even in the church? James 3, verse 15. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist... Confusion and every evil thing are there. The wisdom that we have naturally is earthly, even demonic or devilish, and devoid of the spirit. This should not be so surprising. Long ago Solomon spoke about the way that seems right in Proverbs 14.12 as being the way of death in Proverbs 16.25. This wisdom is destructive to its core. If jealousy and selfish ambition are cultivated and expressed, the natural result will be disorder and dissension, similar to the situation in Corinth, which we read about in Second Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 20. For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. 
lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Question. Read James three seventeen and 18, John 3, 3 to 7, Colossians 3, 1 to 2. Together, what are these texts telling us about heavenly wisdom? First of all, James 3, verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And John chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. While James never refers to the Holy Spirit directly, the idea of the new birth is clearly present. The Apostle seems to prefer instead the agricultural metaphor of sowing and bearing fruit, perhaps based on Jesus' parables that refer to the word being sown in people's hearts as they hear the gospel message. We see that in Matthew 13, verses 3 to 9 and verses 18 to 23. Beginning at verse 3, Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And verses 18 to 23, Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a time. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now, he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Heavenly wisdom 
is full of mercy as well as good fruits. As we have seen, despite the emphasis in James on obedience and good works as the fruit of faith, mercy triumphs even in the judgment in James 2.13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, the truly wise will not only be meek and humble like Jesus, but also peaceable, gentle, merciful and forgiving, willing to overlook the faults of others, not critical or judgmental of them. So to finish the day, it's so easy to fall into the ways of the world, isn't it? Examine yourself. How much does worldly wisdom, in contrast to wisdom from heaven, influence how you live? Tuesday, November 18, Cause of Conflict and Quarrels James 4.1 reads, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Before our question, let's look at Galatians 5.17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Question. What basic conflict do both these passages describe? The opening verses of James 4 describe believers torn asunder by internal bitter strife. There is an inward cause of the outward quarrels in the church. The cravings for pleasure, the word in Greek gives us our word hedonism. These sinful desires, which Paul metaphorically refers to as the flesh, are actively making war against our higher spiritual motivations. The Christian life involves a protracted battle which, if not governed by the wisdom from above of James 3.17, spills out to the church itself and causes spiritual trauma among believers. Question. Read James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. What specific sinful desires are mentioned, and how are they affecting the church? Verse 2. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. These verses contain direct references to the Ten Commandments. You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, verse 2. The repeated references to the problem of envy, coveting and cravings or passions, let's compare that elsewhere in James to 3, verses 14 and to 16. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. These reflect a perspective similar to the one expressed by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in which the inner motivations, not just outward actions, are in view. Therefore, the reference to murder is probably meant in this broader sense to include anger. 
The earliest congregations probably did not have members killing one another. On the other hand, as we learn from the book of Acts, there were times, particularly in Jerusalem, where James was based, when betrayal could easily have led to the arrest and putting to death of church members. In the book Desire of Ages, page 330 to 331, we read, It is the love of self that brings unrest. When we are born from above, the same mind will be in us that was in Jesus, the mind that led him to humble himself that we might be saved. Then we shall not be seeking the highest place. We shall desire to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn of him. Wednesday, November 19, Friendship with the World Question. Read James chapter 4, verses 2 to 4. Why does James call his readers adulterers and adulteresses? Also have a look at Jeremiah 3, 6 to 10, and verse 20, Isaiah 54, verse 5, Jeremiah 2, 2, and Luke 16, verse 13. First of all, James 4, verses 2 to 4. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And Jeremiah 3, verses 6 to 10. The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I said after she had done all these things, Return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass, through her casual harlotry, that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet... For all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. And Jeremiah 3.20 Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. And Isaiah 54 verse 5 For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. And Jeremiah 2, 2. Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. And Luke 16, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. 
Alluding to the biblical concept of Israel as God's bride, James likens believers going along with worldly customs and being influenced by worldly attitudes to spiritual adultery. In reality, they are choosing a different master and lord. The next verse, James 4.5, which reads, Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit was who dwells in us, yearns jealously, is not easy to understand. Some have called it the most difficult verse in the New Testament. The ambiguity of the Greek text is reflected in the major translations. Some consider the Spirit to be the Holy Spirit. The Spirit in us yearns jealously, in the New King James Version and another one. He jealously desires the Spirit, if with capital letters, the New American Standard Bible. Others consider it to be the human spirit. God yearns jealousy for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, the new revised standard version, and he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, in the new international version. The latter rendering by the NIV fits the grammar and context best, but regardless of the translation, the meaning of the verse is not very clear. Based on a careful study of the verse's syntax and the immediate context, verses 5 and 6 could be translated as follows. Or do you think that the scripture speaks in vain against envy? The spirit which he has caused to dwell in us yearns, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As verses 1 to 4 make clear, the human spirit or heart is permeated with desires that, while not originally or in themselves evil, have been twisted by sin into wicked pathways. Grace is the only real solution to our plight. The proud, however, have placed themselves in a position where they can't easily receive that grace. Someone wrote that we get grace as do beggars holding up a tin cup before a waterfall. Only a person, humble, meek, and aware of his or her utter need and dependency, is open to grace. To the unmerited favour bestowed upon those who are, in every way, unworthy. As Ellen G. White wrote in Desire of Ages, page 317, Our great need is our only claim on God's mercy. So to finish today, look at yourself. What in you makes you worthy of salvation? How does your answer help you realize the great need of grace in your own life? How does the cross, and the cross alone, answer that need? Thursday, November 20, Submission to God Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4, 7 Notice the order of the commands here. If we try to resist the devil in our own strength, what chance of success do we have? When seven Jewish exorcists tried to get a demon out of a possessed man by using the names of Jesus and Paul as a kind of magic formula, the demon-possessed man so overpowered the exorcists that they ran away naked 
and bleeding, as we read in Acts chapter 19, verses 13 to 16. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Thus we need to submit to God and his will in order to resist the devil. In fact, by taking that very step, we are resisting the devil. At the same time, we should not suppose that the first readers of James' letter had never submitted themselves to God before. James is clearly writing to professed believers. So perhaps we need to think more in terms of submitting ourselves to God daily and resisting the devil whenever his temptations assert themselves. Question. Read James chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. What commands did James give, and how are they interrelated? How are they connected with submission to God as well? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. The appeal to change in these verses is the culmination of all that James has been saying since chapter 3, verse 13. In the passage we have been studying this week, there are contrasts between heavenly wisdom and devilish wisdom, and between the proud who exalt themselves as the devil did, as in Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning! How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations! For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High." and the lowly who submit to God and humble themselves. There is also a charge of infidelity to the covenant with God in James 4 verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Compare that with verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Therefore, the call to submit to God goes beyond moralistic admonition. It is calling sinners to repentance, as Jesus did. And we can see that in Luke chapter 5 and verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. How should one repent? James supplies the steps based on Psalm 24, 3-6, which reads, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Selah. 1. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 2. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, that is, actions as well as thoughts. 3. Lament, mourn and weep for your shortcomings, realizing again that your need is your only claim to God's grace. So to finish today, James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. What does that mean? How do you learn to humble yourself? How can we learn to emulate the humility that Jesus revealed? Friday, November 21. From the book Desire of Ages, page 330, we read, There are many whose hearts are aching under a load of care because they seek to reach the world's standard. They have chosen its service, accepted its perplexities, adopted its customs. Thus their character is marred and their life made a weariness. In order to gratify ambition and worldly desires, they wound the conscience and bring upon themselves an additional burden of remorse. The continual worry is wearing out the life forces. Our Lord desires them to lay aside this yoke of bondage. He bids them seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and His promise is that all things needful to them for this life shall be added. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. Number one, think more about the two kinds of wisdom discussed in Monday's lesson and make a list of the thoughts associated with each. Now, think about times during this week where you made important decisions or took important actions. Which kind of wisdom was involved? Two, as we saw on Sunday, God promised Israel that as a result of their observing his laws, surrounding nations would come to admire them as a wise and understanding people. But did this not lead Israel to become proud? This is, of course, contrary to heavenly wisdom, which leads to humility. What happened to them, and how can we learn to avoid their mistakes? How could a proper understanding of the true meaning of the sanctuary service have been their best defence against pride? How should the cross for us today be the ultimate defence against pride? 3. Read again the Ellen White statement above. How many of the world's standards do we strive for? Are those standards always of necessity wrong? So often, too, we can read of people who, by the world's standards, seem to have everything, and yet their lives turn out to be wrecks. What should that tell us about just how deceptive so much of what the world offers really is? Most important, though, how can we learn to resist the world and help our young people who can be easily caught up by the false promises of the world not to fall into this trap? And four, dwell more on this idea of humility. Why is that so important in the life of a Christian? Why is pride so deadly for anyone who wants to follow Jesus?
Inside Story. Our mission story this week is the second part of The Disobedient Son with Vitaliano Marrero. Vitaliano hated having a house church next door. He decided to turn his radio up to full volume to rock music when the group met. He thought, If I disturb their meetings, they'll find another place to meet and I won't have to deal with them in my neighbourhood. He played loud music for months, but the group continued meeting. No one complained. In fact, the few members of the church who knew Vitaliano were kinder than ever to him. Alexei's attendance at the club awakened in Magdalia's heart a desire to know God. She began reading the Bible and accepted Bible studies from Rosabel. Sometimes Magdalia read the Bible and ignored her housework. When Vitaliano returned home and found the house a mess, he asked his mother what happened. Your wife spends all day reading the Bible and doesn't have time to clean the house. Another time, Vitaliano's mother told him, I think Magdalia is going to the house church on Saturday mornings. Vitaliano confronted his wife. Are you going to become a Christian? he asked. I do not want you to go to that church any more. One day, Vitaliano found Magdalia studying the Bible. Grabbing the Bible, he threatened to throw it into the fire, but fear gripped him. Will God punish me for burning the Bible? he wondered. He closed the door and threw the Bible into the bedroom. A few days later, he saw the Bible on a shelf. Opening it, his eyes fell on Malachi 3.17. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. Vitaliano closed the Bible. He knew that God was telling him that his wife and son belonged to God. He became afraid to forbid them to attend the church. A few days later, the pastor's son came to visit Vitaliano. The two had been friends for many years. My friend, the man said, you are having a program this evening and I'd like you to come. Look, I'm wearing work clothes, I'm dirty, Vitaliano responded. But his friend offered to go with him and Vitaliano reluctantly agreed. The program had a lot of music and Vitaliano enjoyed it. When his friend invited him again, Vitaliano went. Little by little, Vitaliano's heart softened. A few weeks later, his friend invited him to study the Bible. Vitaliano agreed. He began attending worship services in the house church. Soon, Vitaliano's mother began attending the church too. Now the whole family was attending church and studying the Bible together. A few months later, Vitaliano, Migdalia and Vitaliano's mother were baptised. At his baptism, Vitaliano testified, It was my son whose example brought our family to the feet of Jesus. Your reader this week has been Dr. Percy Harold. The lessons have been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember that God is always faithful.